if you remember, we're, we've reached something of a high point. King David in Jerusalem defeating his enemies and the presence of God with him as the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem. And then we come to these wonderful promises. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I make your name great, like the name of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them, so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since my time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this was not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you, for you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord, there is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt? You've established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, 
Keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promise, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, so your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God, your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Thank you for reading, Ruth. Uh, Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that we have your words and your promises. That just as you speak to David, you speak to us today through those words. We pray that you would give us ears and hearts to listen to you and to be encouraged by your love and your grace and the power of your promises. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Often when uh, Lauren and I and the family go to London, we visit some friends and they live uh, just south of London Bridge. And often when we're either walking there or we're coming back or coming to, we, we're near the Shard. Do you know the Shard, that great new um, building, which is the, like a great big shard of glass and it comes, it comes straight up. And sometimes when we're, when we're quite close to it and we're walking and perhaps the boys might say, oh, where's the Shard, where's the Shard? And when you're very close to it, you can't see it. Have you found that with a tall building? Some that you're still almost on top of it, and and because of the perspective and so on, you, you, it disappears slightly. You can't quite see it. Or perhaps when you do get closer to, to a big building like that, it's so colossal you you can't quite get your wrap your mind around it about how high it is and how wide it is and so on. Well, a way of kind of understanding it a little bit more would be to look at the architect's model now. Hopefully we have a a slide. So the architects, they build a model beforehand. And the the model is obviously not the real thing, but it plans it. And it means that we, if you were uh, looking at that model, you could walk all the way around it and you could see it from different angles. In fact, you might be able to see and understand the shard in some ways that you wouldn't if you're actually in front of it. So you kind of get a little idea of of what's going on. What is this building? Now, why am I talking about the Shard? Well, in a similar way, the Gospel and the Lord Jesus is so monumental and so life-changing. How do you wrap your head around what is going on and what God is doing in Jesus? Well, God has built a model if we can put it like that, called the Old Testament. And so if you're wondering why we, we, we come to church on a Sunday morning, we're, we're going back hundreds of years and we're reading about the, the, the um, adventures of King David and his kingdom. Well, as we're reading this, God all the way through the Old Testament is putting together a, a picture, ways in which we can understand his plan and the Lord Jesus. And so when Jesus does turn up, We are able, because of this, to understand and appreciate who he is and what he's doing. 
imagine that you were at the cross at Calvary. You would not necessarily have known there is Jesus Christ who has died as an atoning sacrifice for my sins. You would have seen someone dying like a criminal, like anyone else. As many people did. You wouldn't have necessarily have had that interpretation. But here, God has prepared for us that model, hasn't he? The exodus, the sacrifices, and all of the plans. So that we can see when God's life-changing, universe-changing, central, monumental work in Jesus Christ and the gospel, when he turns up, when he steps onto earth, we have an idea about what is going on because God has prepared the way. And so here we are reading this and perhaps we might briefly think about um, the original readers. Perhaps um, people are reading it a little bit further on down the line, perhaps back in Nehemiah's day. If you remember Nehemiah, when people returned from exile and they're building, uh, rebuilding Jerusalem, they're trying to get the kingdom back together and they're thinking, well, where is God's kingdom? This is a disaster. We've been chucked out of the land. Is it really going to happen? Perhaps a few hundred years later than that, just before Christ arrives, you're thinking, well, we've been occupied by the Romans. Where is God's plan to save the whole world? Where is it? Perhaps 2,000 years after that, we're here in what some people call a post-Christian country. And if you've heard that term and you're thinking, well, where is the kingdom of God? Seems to have, have disappeared. We heard earlier from Bobby about that great Christian heritage in this city, and yet we're having to re-educate people as to what God is doing and has done in his world. And so we need God to step in and to assert himself, to break in with revelation, not just with a plan, but with his character. You know, people who pray for revival, they know that, don't they? They're not relying on strategy. They're praying that God will bring the kingdom about. And this chapter leads us really to verse 22. Have a look down at verse 22. This is where, really where we need to be <clears throat> headed in our hearts to join David. He says, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you. That, that's where this, this chapter leads us. And it's in two halves. God speaks and David responds. And David's prayer and response uh, responds to two main things that God says. And uh, we'll think about those in those uh, two chunks. Firstly, let's think about praising the God who serves. Praise the God who serves. David, um, he has a plan. So he's, um, he's been settled in the land. He's now the king over Israel. So verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So David, it makes sense, doesn't it? I think you can understand that, 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 that they're finally settled. They've been traveling around in a tent. And the ark of God, the presence of God, well, David thinks, Why? Let's honor that. Let's build the temple. And it's well meant. I think some people might, uh, might see this as, uh, David being presumptuous, but I think it's well meant. We've just come off the back of chapter 6, where David is presented as exemplary, enjoying the joy of the Lord before him. So, you know, David, this is David, this is the peak of his kingdom. It's well meant, but it's just not going to happen with him. That's God's plan. 
we read in, two, in uh, the book of Kings that God said this wasn't going to happen because David was a man of war. And so the establishing of the temple um, should be done by a man of peace. So the temple does happen, doesn't it? It's a, it's a fairly good idea. It's good. God even designs the temple, but it's not for David. And then and God speaks through the prophet Nathan to David. So verse 5, have a look down. So rather, God says this, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you, are, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in the house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. So God is saying to, to David, really, look, who's in need here, really? I'm not in need, says the Lord. I don't need, I don't need a, a temple. And God says to David, let's just remember, who's, who's blessing who here? It's good of David. He wants to do, uh, to honour God in that way. But God says, no, who's blessing who here? I'm blessing you, remember? Remember how you were a nobody? A shepherd, the youngest of eight brothers, and I took you and I anointed you and made you king. Remember how I cut off all your enemies? That was me. I was winning the battles. So it's a sort of recap. Do you see? God God recaps him, and it's, it's important. It's that recap. Perhaps if you're watching Netflix series and it comes up, you know, what went on before and the recap, and you want to skip it. Don't skip, God says. Don't skip the recap. It's important. Remember, David, remember the context? I bless you. I show my grace to you. And God says he will carry on that. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies and I will make your name great over all the earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel. So God reminds David. He's, he's saying, look, David, this is a... I see your heart is a good plan, but really I want to show you that me, the God of the whole universe, says the Lord, will bless you. Because that's the way God works. That's the way it has worked. The greater blesses the lesser. But in God's case, it's extraordinary. Because he's the Lord of all creation. And that's how he chooses to operate. No, David, I bless you, remember? That's what I'm like. Uh, re- recently discovered um, this anecdote. I think it was in uh, Tony Blair's memoirs, the ex-Prime Minister. And he uh, records uh, an episode where he and his wife went to visit um, the late Queen Elizabeth at Balmoral. And I think I read elsewhere that this is a, a, either a habit or a tradition. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, but um, there was one time where he went up there and what happens is, is that uh, the Queen and uh, Prince Philip would serve the Prime Minister just for the weekend. And so, so Tony Blair describes in his book uh, an unlikely barbecue where Prince Philip cooked and the other members of the royal family cleared up. So he says this, You think I'm joking, but I'm not. 
They put the gloves on and they stick their hands in the sink. The Queen asks you if you've finished. She stacks the plates and goes off to the sink. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? Queen Elizabeth would, would put, the, put the rubber gloves on, ask Tony Blair if he's finished, if he's going to finish his peas and eat them up, otherwise he won't get any pudding, and then takes the plate away and then takes it to the sink and washes it up. Well, that does sound like a monarch who's read her Bible and understands this God, doesn't it? So that's what God is doing here in a sort of cosmic and profound way. It's not just the dishes and washing up and serving a barbecue. God's saying, look, this is, this is what I do for you. I am the gracious Lord. And the, this first thing that God says, well, in the first part of David's prayer, he responds to it. So David's response in the second half of the chapter helps us to understand how we should understand what God has been saying. So look at verse 19. Who am I, sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. That's absolutely right, isn't it? That's exactly the response God wants from David and from us. Who am I? Who am I? That God has treated me this way. And what happens here is that David understands what God is like at his core. We don't often do this or look at another translation. I know some of you often use the ESV, which I found um, much more helpful in this particular chapter. I'm going to go back to verse 3, uh, and there's a little word that the NIV um, has uh, translated for you, mind. But it's actually heart. Let me read that. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in your heart, go ahead and do it. So that's literally what it says. Whatever you have in your heart, what's on your heart, David, you go and do it. Now look down at verse 21, because the same word turns up. For the sake of your word and according to your heart, you have done it. So do you see what's happening then? At the start of the chapter, David has something on his heart that he wants to do. I want to honour God, I want to build this temple. And God stepped in and gone, now look at my heart. According to your heart, Lord, David says, what is God's heart like? God's saying, yes, you are my servant, David. I have, you are the king, but actually I have made you and I will continue to bless you. David's incredulous, isn't he? Why have you redeemed a people for yourself? Because that is what God is heart, God's heart is like. Verse 19 says, you have also spoken about the future of your house, your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. Literally, that word there is the law, is the Torah. It's almost as if, as if God is saying, look, I have put this as a sort of a constitution, a law in all of the universe that I will behave like this towards humanity. Set in stone. That's the constitution of the universe, that God will be lavish and graceful and gracious to humanity. And, and that's what David picks up in, in verse 23. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, 
who God went out to redeem as a people for himself. Can you see how he's echoing what God has said um, in verse 10? I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so they can have a home of their own. So David is picking up that idea of what God's done and says, you've made a people for yourself. That's extraordinary. Why would God do that? He doesn't owe us anything. Maybe we can think about that even in our own story. Why me? Why would God do that for me? Maybe in your own story you remember a time when you didn't know the Lord. And then you realise what he'd done. He'd said, look, this offer of salvation in Jesus is for you. And you thought, well, why? What have I done? I've not earned it. I'm not good enough for God. In fact, why would God even be interested? He, he could make the universe. Why would he be interested in me pootling around on my bike around Cambridge? Just a little sort of ant buzzing around. Why, why would God be even interested in what I'm doing, let alone step down and say, I want to take you and bring you into my kingdom and make you my people for myself. Now I will be your king and look after you. Isn't that incredible? God is showing grace upon grace to David, just as he does to all of his people. That's really encouraging this morning. This morning, think about this. God is not done being gracious to you. Isn't that amazing? We've known God's grace in our lives, but he's not done yet. Adds grace and grace and grace. Now, sometimes in my worst moments, I've found myself thinking, well, maybe this will sort of come to an end, as it were. That, you know, God has shown me so much love and grace. I can't expect any more, can I? One of the Puritans, John Owen, wrote this. He said, the, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is to not believe that he loves you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get into that mindset, think, well, would God love me any more? And John Owen's quite right, isn't he? He's saying, that's an unkindness to God. You've not understood this God of grace. He's a kind and loving father almost it sounds too much to believe and so like david we want to serve god don't we but we're not here to do god any favors he doesn't need anything that we do even if it's well meant and god owes us nothing well before we move on let's just think really briefly about Um, what that might mean well I think firstly really very very simply just like David it means we give praise don't we we give praise to God just like David did and when was the last time you truly praised God from the heart for this grace Give, give God praise it means we can serve freely doesn't it I've spoken to some of you over the last few days and weeks seeing how you're you're serving here you want to serve more um maybe it's a bit tiring but but it doesn't it doesn't matter how how great or how little your service whether there's things you want to do for god but you but you can't for whatever reason we can serve freely we're not earning anything from god 
we can serve him freely. And thirdly, when we have this idea of the Lord in our minds, well, all other delights should pale, shouldn't they, into insignificance compared to knowing this God. Well, David, uh, God moves on when he's talking to David. So um, he's already said uh, in verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And then halfway through verse 11, the Lord declares to you. So God goes on to say a second thing. So we've seen that we should praise the, 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 the God who, who serves. He serves us. But here we, we plead with the God who builds. So God goes on to say, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So firstly, um, God's response is, David, are you going to build me a house? Well, that's not the way it works because I blessed you, remember? Grace comes from me. And secondly, God goes even one better and he says, are you going to build me a house? Tell you what, no, I'm going to build you a house. That's the way it's going to work. And God God means a household. That idea of house that we use that extends beyond that, like the house of Windsor, for example. God says, I'm going to build you a house. He is the ultimate builder. When your days are over, verse 12, and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We thought briefly this morning earlier about this idea. This is a, a real high point in the Old Testament, and it's a really important point in our sort of biblical overview history. So God creates the world, and then mankind sins in rebellion against him, and then the world is under curse after that fall, and yet God does promise that he will send someone to crush the serpent's head to defeat the devil, and then God plucks Abraham, just like David, out of nowhere. And he promises to Abraham that actually the world will be put right through these promises, which is to give Abraham a people and a place and that kings will come from him. Do you see how that is echoed in what God says he's doing for David in verse in chapter 7? And so now here's another bit of the puzzle. All of that is going to happen through one man, through a king, the offspring of David. Now, most immediately, this verse speaks of Solomon, David's son, who will come after him. And so verse 14 says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by them, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So even Solomon, when he comes along and and inevitably um, being merely human sins, that won't destroy the promise of God's kingdom. And even when he dies, that won't destroy the promise of God's kingdom because it will go on forever. So the house and the kingdom and the throne will remain forever. That is at the heart of, of, of God's plan. And David, in the second part of his Um, his response in verse 25 he then responds to this he pleads with God verse 25 now Lord keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house his house 
So this little bit at the end, it focuses on the house idea. It comes up a lot. Verse 25, servant and his house, so that your name will be great. Then the people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Verse 29, now be pleased to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken with your blessing that the house of your servant will be blessed forever. So David picks up that second part of God's promise and he pleads with God saying, okay, you promised this, make it happen. It's an amazing plan. Please make it happen. And David is excited about it. Why is he so excited? He's not going to see it. Did you get that? He, he, he's going to die and all this is going to happen when he's long gone. And yet he's excited about this blessing. Why? Because it's God's plan for complete restoration. So the, the kingdom of God, it's not, it's not just religious jargon. It's God's picture and an explanation for the restoration of the whole world. So God is saying to David, I'm going to do one better. You wanted to build me a temple in a city in Israel. Actually, I've got a better idea, David. I'm going to build you an everlasting kingdom of people who will be brought to a place of peace forever. That's that. Oftentimes when um, we, we get to go away and we get to go to the seaside, which we love, I love to try and get to the beach at about five in the afternoon. It's the golden hour, I think, the golden light. The light is just incredible. And I really love it when the tide is way out. That's my sort of vision in my mind that I have, a glorious golden sunny day and, and the tide is way out. You know, you can just walk on those soft sands and it squidges beneath your feet. You know that feeling and those little gullies of water that are orphaned from the sea. Um, just run between your toes and the sea seems far away and you can just run and do anything and it's glorious and golden that's sort of what I'm going for in my head and we turn up to the beach oftentimes with our, with our family and the boys particularly they just love being at the beach so as, as soon as they can see any sand or sea that's it they've drop everything the towels are down they start digging uh, and they're, they're just going to make and do whatever they want but of course it's right near probably the car park or right where everyone else has turned up to the beach and it's all a bit crowded. And I'm sort of really annoying dad. He said, no, 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 we're not going to stay here, not yet. Let's just go a little bit further up. Let's find a bit more space where there's no people around. Of course, there's grumbling. Oh, we got to the beach, want to run in the sea. And I say, come on, let's just, let's just try it. Reluctantly, okay, trudging along. How much more are we going to walk? How much more are we going to walk? Well, the people start to thin out a little bit on this part of the beach. But eventually it opens out and there they are running around and they see the goodness of it and they say, it's amazing, this is really good. And I say to them, yeah, this is what I want for you. Further up the beach. It's really good. Further up the beach. I know it's fun there, but this is going to be better further up the beach and you feel like you've got the whole world to yourself. Well, here is God 
who says to David, come further up the beach, David. It's great that you want to build me a temple, but I've got a better idea. And this plan that begins with the seed of David's kingdom will blossom into the full restoration of the world in a new creation, in a paradise. Now, I don't know if you've glanced at the headlines recently. I was going to bring some in, but they're just numerous. Go on or online or, or whatever and go to whatever news site you read and just glance down at anything that's going on. Look at what's going on in Ukraine. Look at what's going on in Iran. Look at what's going on in our own country. Look at pictures of, of, of food shelves empty in the supermarkets or whatever it might be. It's not paradise, is it? So I would suggest to you that anyone despairing at the world cannot afford to ignore this chapter of the Bible. Anyone despairing of the world cannot afford to ignore this chapter of the Bible where God has said, no, I've promised it and it will happen. And so that's why David pleads with God, doesn't he? Make it happen. And did you notice that here in this chapter we've, we've been presented with a, um, a God-King relationship? So it's about making a name. Did you pick that up as we were reading? I'm going to make a name for you. I'm going to make a name for you. Uh, and that is about bringing glory to you. So go back to verse 9. I've been with you wherever you've gone, God says, and I've cut off your enemies. Now I'll make your name great. Verse 13. God speaks of David's son. He will be the one to build the house for my name and I will establish his throne forever. Verse 23. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, to make a name for himself? Verse 26. Do this, David says, so that your name will be great forever. So this promise to David that his son this offspring will actually, he will make his name great, but this son will make God's name great because he will build this household, this kingdom for God. So, so, so just who, who is bringing glory to who here in this, in this chapter? God's saying, I'm going to make your name great, David, and then you're going to have this offspring and he's going to build a people, a household, and make my name great. Well, who's giving glory to who here? Well, it's it's mutual, isn't it? And, and it brings to mind the way that the Lord Jesus reveals and speaks to his father, that father-son relationship. Do you remember Jesus before he goes to the cross says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your name. And God says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And Jesus prays that prayer in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to those who have given, you've given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world. So here is that offspring. It's the Lord Jesus. And God says, I will make his name great. I will make the name of Christ great. He will be the name above all names. And Jesus, the perfect son, says to his father, I will make your name great because I will redeem a people for you. Can you see how how that works? And so this is what these original readers should be hoping for, whether you're building in Nehemiah's day, what's happened to the line of David, whether you're waiting for the Christ. You should expect this, and it's what we should expect as well. It's a kingdom that will bring peace. Initially through Solomon, whose name is sort of the same root as Shalom. Peace. Shalom. He's the one that will bring peace. And ultimately, Jesus Christ will bring that peace. That's what we want. We talk about RIP, don't we? Rest in peace. Because death can be an escape from illness even from the world, and we want peace for people. We talk about peace and quiet, don't we? Somewhere just to to be on my own without the noise of the world. We talk about peace treaties to end war. All of those things are in God's kingdom and are a part of it. So what about us then? Is our prayer life like King David's? Kingdom longing? Is that how we pray to God, to be pleased with him? Or do we simply sort of hand God our diary and our intray and ask him to bless it? Like, okay, God, on Monday I've got this coming up. If you could bless that, that'd be helpful. And then and on Tuesday this is going on, so I'll just pray for that. All good things. God is interested. But are we praying like David, pleading for the kingdom to come in the UK, in South Cambridge, in our own life, pleading for the kingdom to come? You see, in Jesus, God is making his name to bring glory through all people. That should be our delight, and it is happening. I was struck by a quote that a friend of mine working with some students sent me a few weeks ago on a mission. Last night, three students indicated they'd entrusted themselves to Christ for the first time. I've now lost count of the number of conversations that seem to have ended with, if this is true, it's amazing. That's right, isn't it? And God is building his kingdom right now. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for these promises. Restoration for the whole world through a kingdom built by your own precious son and his blood shed on the cross. And we give you great praise. Amen.